What does being a gentleman and being a Christian have in common? It's probably not what you think. Today, we're going to take a look at how C.S. Lewis answers that surprisingly challenging question, what is a Christian? My name is Stephen Cram, and this is My Apologies. An apology is an argument to justify something that you believe. For example, if I ask you why you believe in aliens, I'm asking you to provide me with an apology. On this channel, we will explore apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. But if I say something that offends you, my apologies. I mentioned in the first episode that we're starting this channel with a series in which we will use the book Mere Christianity as a launching pad for our discussions. For this episode, we'll be drawing from the preface to the book. Yep, you heard that right. You probably thought we would start with chapter one. Nope. We'll finally hit chapter one in episode three of this podcast. In my own personal reading, I'm often guilty of skipping prefaces or going right to chapter one. In this case, though, the preface is just too good to miss, so we had to take a look. So the question we're looking at today is, what is a Christian? It seems simple at first, but when you start to really think about it, the definition is kind of tough to pin down. Does it mean someone that's baptized? Well, maybe that's part of it, but what if that baptized person has denied the faith and become an atheist? What about someone who regularly attends church, maybe? Well, how regularly are they supposed to attend? Every week? Twice a month? Maybe you think Christian refers to someone who is saved by Jesus. Well, then that just begs the question, how do you know that they're saved? You may have a definition in mind. In fact, I hope that you do. If you don't have any thoughts on the matter, take a second and just consider it. If I came up to you on the street and asked you, hey man, or (laughs) if you're not a man, uh, if I came up to you on the street and asked you, what is a Christian? What would you say? What sort of description would you give? Maybe you'd say a good person. Maybe you'd say a hypocrite, perhaps, if that's been your experience. This is a good time for me to mention that my goal in this Mere Christianity series is to present you with what C.S. Lewis has to say on these topics. And Lewis isn't the Protestant Pope or anything like that. You don't have to agree with him on all these topics. I'm not even sure I agree with him about everything. After all, he was Anglican, and I am not. That being said, I do think that Lewis presents a worldview that is consistent with Holy Scripture, church history, and reason. Hopefully, as we go through this series together, you'll agree with that statement. Now that I've given you a minute to kind of think about it, hopefully you've got some preliminary thoughts on the question, what is a Christian? So let's dive in. For context, this preface that we're looking at was added to explain some of the nuances of the book and respond to some of the comments that Lewis had been getting. He is very clear that the goal of his book is not to trudge into the interdenominational conflict. In fact, he says, The reader should be warned that I offer no help to anyone who is hesitating between two Christian denominations. You will not learn from me whether you ought to be an Anglican, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, or Roman Catholic. Then, to drive this point home even further, he explains that even in that list of churches he just named, they were ordered alphabetically so as to not give away any secret preferences that he may have. Of course, from history, we know that Lewis was a staunch member of the Church of England. So how can we trust that his opinions are all unbiased? Well, luckily, he gives us a bit of a peek behind the curtain to give us insight into his writing process. He explains that he actually sent portions of the book to clergymen, meaning professional religious people, from four denominations that were listed previously, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Roman Catholic. He sent them to this diverse group to get their feedback and ensure his content was balanced and acceptable across the board. 
So, with this due diligence, we can be fairly confident that Lewis is not going to give us a sectarian definition. That might look like saying, a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus and accepts the leadership of the Pope. That would limit the word only to Catholics. Or, to give another example, a definition like, a Christian is someone who believes in the Trinity and was baptized as a believer, which would leave out a bevy of groups that baptize infants. No, we can be confident that that is not Lewis's goal. It's not his goal to push the reader towards his own church or any other church specifically. If you listen to episode one, you may remember that his goal is simply to get people into the hallway, as he describes it. The definition of Christian that Lewis lands on, and the one that he'll actually use throughout the book, is simply this. A Christian is someone who accepts the common doctrines of Christianity. Someone who accepts the common doctrines of Christianity. Simple, isn't it? Maybe even too simple, some of you may be thinking. But we'll dig in further to see what he means. Now, at the time of his writing, the primary critique Lewis received was something that I actually think we can relate to today as well. He records the critique as saying, May not many a man who cannot believe these doctrines be far more truly a Christian, far closer to the Spirit of Christ, than some who do? To rephrase this in my own words, couldn't it be the case that someone who doesn't really believe the doctrines of Christianity acts more like a Christian than someone who does believe them? So to give an example of this, my day job is at a secular company where I work with people from all walks of life, atheists, Christians, Muslims, everything in between, Buddhists, and I'm sure a lot of other things that I haven't even thought to list, and probably many people who haven't really given religion a second thought at all. My experience is not that the Christians I work with are the ones who emulate a Christ-like spirit and all those other people stomp around being grumpy and yelling at people. No, not at all. Of course not. I'm sure this has been your experience as well. And this is basically what the critics are saying. If Lewis is going to say that a Christian is just someone who believes the Christian doctrines, wouldn't he be including a rude jerk who technically goes to church over a really kind and caring atheist or maybe a radically generous Buddhist? It's a great point and something that you could probably relate to as well. This is why I thought it worth addressing. So in response, Lewis is going to admit that his critics make a fair point here. It may be true that a non-believer may act more charitably in the way of Christ than someone who does in fact believe. But while these objectives may have some merit, they don't actually bring us to a better or more useful definition of the word. We could assume that the critic would prefer a definition more along the lines of maybe a Christian is someone who loves others or a Christian is someone who acts like Jesus Christ. And these sound pretty good, right? I'm not even being rhetorical when I say that. I genuinely think these sentences are true. Like a Christian should be someone who acts like Jesus. But is that a helpful way to define the word for practical use? Lewis says no. He argues here that we simply shouldn't use the word that way, and he's going to use another word to describe why that is, and that is the word gentleman. This is what I meant in the intro when I said, what does being a gentleman and a Christian have in common? We're about to find out. Lewis says the following, The word gentleman originally meant something recognizable, one who had a coat of arms and some landed property. When you called someone a gentleman, you were not paying him a compliment, but merely stating a fact. If you said he was not a gentleman, you were not insulting him, but giving information. There was no contradiction in saying that John was a liar and a gentleman, any more than there is now in saying that James is a fool and has an MA degree. 
So we see that this title of gentleman used to describe someone who had a coat of arms and land. It was a statement of fact, not a statement about your opinion of that person. It didn't mean that this person was good or bad, tall or short, handsome or ugly. It just meant basically that they were an aristocrat, someone who had a coat of arms and owns land. For those of you who may not know, a coat of arms is typically a shield-shaped design that historically represented a noble person or noble family. They were common among European nobility, and if you've ever seen a movie that takes place during the Middle Ages, I'm sure you've seen them before, even if you didn't quite know what it was at the time. Think of it as like a noble family's personal mascot and logo. So for example, if you're part of the Carolina Panthers organization, you probably have their logo on a lot of your clothes, and especially on those things that you use in an official capacity as someone who works for the organization. Now imagine if your family had that exact same thing that represented your family brand. And that's basically what we're describing here. So if you met these three criteria a few hundred years ago, you would rightly fall into the objective category of gentleman. Criteria number one, you're a man. Now, I think the female equivalent would be a lady, probably. Criteria number two, you have a personal or family logo called a coat of arms. And criteria number three, you own land. Pretty straightforward, right? So what's the problem here? Lewis explains by saying, But then there came people who said, Ah, but surely the important part about being a gentleman is not the coat of arms in the land, but the behavior. Surely he is a true gentleman who behaves as a gentleman should. Surely in that sense, Edward is far more truly a gentleman than John. People decided to adjust the meaning of the word to mean not the concrete definition it once held, but to mean more like the essence of what a gentleman should be. And Lewis describes these people as actually being right in some sense. They're being very sensitive and charitable toward people. But in changing that definition, they're actually just ruining the word completely. He explains further. They meant well. To be honorable and courteous and brave is, of course, far better a thing than to have a coat of arms. But it is not the same thing. Worse still, it is not a thing that everyone will agree about. To call a man a gentleman in this new, refined sense becomes, in fact, not a way of giving information about him, but a way of praising him. To deny that he is a gentleman becomes simply a way of insulting him. And this is the essence of the point right here. Lewis says, When a word ceases to be a term of description and becomes merely a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object. It only tells you about the speaker's attitude toward that object. A gentleman, once it has been spiritualized and refined out of its old, coarse, objective sense, means hardly more than a man whom the speaker likes. As a result, gentleman is now a useless word. And this is definitely the case in my own experience as a young man. By all accounts, I do not meet the old school definition of gentleman. I have no coat of arms, and I only recently bought a house, meaning I technically own a tiny little plot of land, but hardly enough to qualify. However, from as far back as I can remember, holding the door open for an older woman or doing something similarly kind would often result in them saying something along the lines of, Oh, such a gentleman. I genuinely think that this is the only time people use this word anymore, and it basically just means thank you, and that was a nice thing to do. Now, to give another example, imagine if we took a word like lawyer, say, which refers to someone of a specific occupation or skill set, and we decided that it should just mean someone who acts like what we think a lawyer should. That would get very confusing very quickly. Of course, we could continue to call a person who practices law in a noble and upright way a lawyer. But now, since we've defined lawyer to mean someone who acts like a lawyer should, we would also be able to call people 
lawyer if they had no law degree but did something similarly honest? They would be a lawyer too because of this redefinition. But at the same time, we couldn't call someone a lawyer who practices law but in a shady way because they're not acting like a lawyer should. You see how this sort of redefinition blurs the lines and makes the word entirely unhelpful? It effectively throws out the old definition and makes it a word that's hardly worth using at all. Now let's go back to our original intention and apply this word to Christian. If we use it to describe someone who believes in the common doctrines of Christianity, we have a pretty straightforward definition. To call someone a Christian does not mean you like them or you dislike them. It just tells you what that person believes at a very basic level. But what if we make adjustments to the definition based on C.S. Lewis's critics? If we adjust to this definition to mean people who act like a Christian should, now we've really muddled the waters. Who can rightly be called a Christian at this point? Now it just means someone who behaves in a way you approve of. Or if I say, maybe John is not a Christian, I haven't told you anything other than I don't really like the guy, or he doesn't meet my standard of approval. So I hope it's pretty clear that we shouldn't use the definition, someone who acts like a Christian should. It's just way too broad and not useful. Then we have Lewis's definition, someone who accepts the common doctrines of Christianity. But is there another option? I think it's actually pretty common for churchgoers to use a slightly different definition, one that doesn't just look at the person's actions or the person's stated beliefs, but one that refers to the status of that person's soul. I think I've done this myself. So what is that definition and what might Lewis say about that one? It's a common mystery that my wife and I will often struggle over. I've had the conversation with lots of friends over the years. How can we know that we're saved? Can you tell if you're saved yourself? Can you tell if those who are dear to you are saved? Maybe you've asked yourself something along these lines. For any of you who aren't Protestant, this might sound like a foolish question to you. But for people in my tradition, I think it's a struggle that a lot of faithful people have. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to answer that question today. It's kind of a big one, one thing at a time. But it is a helpful question to understand this third possible definition of Christianity we could look at. And that is, someone who is currently saved. Or as Lewis would say it, someone who is near to the spirit of Christ. Now to me, for most of my life, it would have seemed that this is the most accurate definition you could have. A Christian is someone who is near to the spirit of Christ. After all, Christian in the Greek means little Christs, basically. Plus, we are all supposed to be disciples of Christ, following in his footsteps and filled with his spirit, acting like he would act. You got the bracelet. What would Jesus do? It would seem that all Christians should be men and women who are near to the spirit of Christ. I would still actually agree that this particular statement is true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it makes for a good definition. In Lewis's words, it is not for us to say who, in the deepest sense, is or is not close to the spirit of Christ. We do not see into men's hearts. We cannot judge and are indeed forbidden to judge. It would be wicked arrogance for us to say that any man is or is not a Christian in this refined sense. And obviously, a word which we can never apply is not going to be a very useful word. So, he says, because of the simple fact that we can't see into men's hearts the way God can, this cannot be the basis on which we define someone as a Christian or not. If you try to define it this way, you could never call someone a Christian because you'd never be 100% sure that they're saved. It would be convenient if there was a tangible external sign that we could use to infallibly determine someone's closeness with God, but there just isn't. And so we simply can't use this as a definition either. 
To conclude the argument, we read, The point is not a theological or moral one. It is only a question of using words so that we can all understand what is being said. When a man who accepts the Christian doctrines lives unworthily of it, it is much clearer to say he is a bad Christian than to say he is not a Christian. So if you know me in my personal life and you observe, say, I'm cheating on my wife and lying to my boss and embezzling money from the company I work for and just doing a whole bunch of really messy, not good behavior, and you come up to me and say, hey, man, aren't you a Christian? And I'm like, yes, of course I am. And I reiterate to you the gospel and all the things I believe. You would rightly observe that what I say I believe and my actions aren't really lining up. Lewis would argue, it wouldn't be the case that you should say I'm not a Christian. Instead, it'd be more accurate to just say I'm a really bad Christian. If you're a Catholic, or you know anything about the Catholic Church, you may be able to relate to this example. There have been 265 popes, according to the Vatican. There have been many good popes and many bad popes, but they were all popes. Similarly, there are many good Christians and many bad Christians but these are all Christians. You may right now find yourself to be in the category of quote-unquote bad Christian in that you believe the doctrines, but you don't maybe act like it. If that's the case, thank you for listening. If you're here and trying to become a good Christian or a better Christian, that's extremely commendable. I hope this is helpful and I'd love to hear from you about it. Just remember, by our definition in today's episode, I am not saying that if you're trying to be a good Christian, you're trying to be more saved or less damned in a technical sense. Of course, only Jesus can do that. But in the category of people who believe the doctrines of Christianity, there are those who follow it well and those who do not. And I think we can all strive, empowered by the Spirit of God, to follow it well and live up to the name Christian. Before we close, I just want to say a few words about the phrase common doctrines. What are these common doctrines that make someone a Christian? I'll give you the short answer first and then two additional suggestions. The short answer I'll put forward is this. The common doctrines are that which can be found in the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed to be specific. And these doctrines then would be the Trinity and the basic gospel message, the basic story about Jesus. So that's the short answer. But to flesh it out a bit, I have two suggestions for you. First, There's a really great book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and then the subtitle is The Case for Theological Triage. It's by a man named Gavin Ortland. It gives us a framework that I think can be really helpful for us in determining what's a core doctrine or common doctrine and what's not necessarily core. In his book, he separates doctrines into four categories. First-ranked doctrines are those that are essential to the gospel itself. Second-ranked doctrines are urgent for the health and the day-to-day practice of the church, but they're not first rank. And because of this, they tend to be the reason for separation between different local churches or different denominations. So they're legitimately important, but they're not quite first rank. Third rank doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not important enough to be the basis for separation. Then you have fourth-ranked doctrines that are just completely unimportant to the gospel message and our day-to-day lives as Christians. So to summarize, you have four categories, essential, urgent, important, and unimportant. 
So this book isn't intended to give us all the answers. It doesn't definitively draw the line between these four categories. But this book is a great resource to help us start thinking about what's most important about our faith. And then my second suggestion is that this whole discussion is based on the preface to a book called Mere Christianity, which means Christianity at its simplest. Therefore, I would suggest we can look to the rest of the book to see what Lewis thinks are the common doctrines, because clearly he's going to talk about them. So stick around with us and we'll learn about it together. Or you could even pick up a copy of the book and read along with us as we go. So to wrap this up, today we talked about the question, what is a Christian? We gave two answers that are possible. Number one, a Christian is someone who acts like a Christian. And number two, a Christian is someone who is saved or someone who is near to the spirit of Christ. We talked about maybe why these are bad examples of definitions and the better example, which C.S. Lewis offers, which is to say a Christian is someone who believes the common doctrines of Christianity. So what do you think? Do you agree with Lewis or do you have a different take? If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing. Share this with a friend or family member who might be interested and leave a review. I'd love to hear from you and it helps get the word out to even more people. Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram, and this has been My Apologies. <laughs>